But I want to speak to you today, and I hope that today will be a help to you. Um, there's a lot of things that we've faced over these past couple of years as human beings, and I want to talk today about a few specific things. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, you already know what I'm going to ask you to do as we read God's Word today. I'm going to read out of the message translation, verses 6 through 9, and we're going to dive into this and talk about this a little bit today. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 says this, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you have learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that. Somebody say, do that. And God who makes everything work together will work into it work you into his most excellent harmonies. If that don't encourage you, I don't know what will. I want to talk to you today a little bit. I'm going to try to talk a little bit and not preach so much. Um, I can tend to preach a lot and it might happen. I can't promise anything. We'll see what takes place. But I want to talk to you today from the title, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for every single person in this room and under the sound of my voice, those that are watching from the other side of a screen. God, you know right where we are. You know everything that we're facing. And God, today I pray, Lord, that your word would just saturate our souls, that we would hear from you, that we would be refreshed today in ways that maybe we haven't been in a long time. God, as we step into this holiday season, times that can be tough with families and friends and friends and family that may not be with us this year, I pray, Lord, that you would just refresh us today, that your Holy Spirit would cover us, give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Why don't you give somebody a hug before you take a seat? Somebody needs a hug today. Give somebody a hug. Some of the non-social people today are freaking out right now, and that's okay. Well, have you ever had a time in your life where you told yourself my title today that I'm not okay? Anybody ever been there before? You've said the statement, I'm not okay. I think if we were all to agree that we've probably at some part, part in some form in our life have made that statement to say, I'm not okay. Um, I've had that happen a few times in my life. And this can come from either extreme. It could come from a place where you're about to do something that you've never done before and you're making everything look like it's okay on the outside, but on the inside, you're freaking out, and you're like, I'm not okay. Anybody ever been there before? Like asking your girlfriend's dad to marry his daughter. Like you may be okay on the outside, even though he has sunglasses on and he was 45 minutes late to the Starbucks I tried to meet him at. 
True story. Everything on the outside, I was like, I'm okay, I'm great. Inside, I'm like, ah! Not okay. Maybe it's giving a presentation for the first time or the 80th time, and maybe you're walking out and you're trying to make sure everything, you're smiling, everything looks okay, but on the inside, you're like, I'm not okay, I'm nervous. Anybody ever been there before? You're giving a presentation at work, trying to act like you know what you're talking about, but you just now did the study last night, and you really don't know what you're talking about, so you're trying to talk like you know what you're talking about, and everybody else knows you don't know what you're talking about, but you know what you're talking about, and you hope everybody else sees what you're talking about. Is that, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Or maybe it's on the other extreme where your life may look successful all around you. Things are going great, but on the inside, you're truly not okay. Your marriage is great, but for some reason, you're not okay. Your your life and your, your job and your business may even be successful. You may be doing great things, but some reason, you're just not okay. Life around you may be good. You may have friends. You may have good health. You, you may even love your kids. You have a healthy life, but you're still just not okay. Or maybe none of those things apply. Maybe your life is falling apart. Maybe you've come here today as the last step of desperation, and you're telling yourself, I'm not okay. Can I be transparent with you as your pastor today? I I asked that question, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) It's more of a rhetorical question. But there have been times in my life where I've even asked myself and been in places of my life where I've told myself, I'm not okay. There's been times in my life where I've even asked myself, can I do what I'm doing anymore? Pastoring, leading, preaching, helping people. Like, can I do this for another 10 years? Like, do I want to do this? Because y'all crazy. (laughs) Y'all need some help. We all need some help. But I've found myself in times in my life where I've Everything was okay. My life, for, the, for, for most regard, was, was good. My marriage is great. My, my kids are healthy. Our church is strong. God is moving and doing miracles. I've e- I even love my in-laws. That's a, that's a miracle for some people. But for the most part, like life is going good, but yet there were times, and yeah, there were struggles. Yeah, I've had to walk a faith line. Yes, I've dealt with loss, and Considering everything, I would say my life is good. God has blessed me in more ways than I can count. I have a lot to be grateful for, but yet there's still some times where I can find myself that even though my life may look okay, there's times when I don't feel okay. Even though God is moving all around me, there's times in my life where I found myself saying, but I really don't feel like God is moving in me. Now I want to give a disclaimer today. I want you to know that I'm okay. I don't need you sending emails or trying to catch me after service and being all awkward like, Pastor, we're praying for you. Don't be sending me no treats and cookies trying to make me fat. I don't want to need any more carbohydrate overload. I'm okay. I got people in my life. I just wanted to leave a disclaimer today. I'm fine. But I want you to know that there are times that I'm human too and I have these same thoughts. It's a real thing. Something that everybody in this room deals with. And I've discovered that I've oftentimes I get worried or I get anxious on things that I have no control over. Worry, anxiety, 
even depression in some forms, is feeling out of control. And I've learned in my own journey that having control is releasing control to the one who has ultimate control. Now, I don't know if I can put what I have faced in my life up to the level of depression, but whatever it has been, I knew that I couldn't stay there. And the only person that's going to be able to get me out of that situation or to get me healthy and to get me better is me with God's help. I've even saw this, this reel. I saw it several months ago. Y'all may have seen this. I don't know if it's like some, some uh, motivational speaker, some doctor or something. It's been on like Instagram on social media reels. And it's like, nobody's coming. Anybody ever heard this one? It's like, nobody's coming. Nobody's going to get you out of bed. Nobody's going to tell you to turn the TV off. Nobody's going to tell you to build that business plan. You have to learn to parent yourself. Nobody's coming. And let me just say this today. Depression is real. Mental illness is real. Matter of fact, did you know that one out of every nine people are on some sort of depression medication? One out of every nine of you in this room are on some sort of depression medication. And matter of fact, one of every five of you have, at some point in your life have been on a medication. It's a real thing. Antidepressants have gone up in the past couple of years 300%, and it continues to increase. Depression has become the number one health problem in the world. And did you know that as of even recently in the past couple of years, calls to mental health lines have skyrocketed up 900%. That 25% or sorry, divorce filings have gone up 29%. That 25% of all adults, young adults have considered some form of suicide and 10% of all of Americans have considered suicide. It's a real deal. And we got to talk about it. You see, there are very real biological contributions to depression and anxiety. And I'm not here to say that, that I'm here to tell you that, that there are some, some of you today that you are facing something that has an Im, a, a hormonal imbalance. It's something that you have to get adjusted. But I believe a lot of us in this room, we face something called situational anxiety, situational depression, situational worry. And you see, if we allow the biology to become the whole picture, we will miss the real solutions. And I want to tell you something that depression is not a malfunction of the mind. It's a signal. It's trying to tell you something. And if you're depressed, if you're anxious, let me tell you today, you're not weak and you're not crazy. You're a human being with unmet needs and other parts of your life. You see, there is this stigma that is put on people who have depression and mental illness, and we tend to think less of these people. We actually identify them with their problem. But yet when someone gets physically sick, like someone has the flu, you don't say, oh, that's that flu person. I mean, maybe with COVID, it's like, that's COVID. <laughs> but we got to break the stigma on people that are facing mental illness. We don't think any less of the person who has a physical issue. We've got to remove that stigma of depression and other mental health issues. And the only area where your illness becomes your identity. But let me tell you, your illness is not your identity. It's not. And the Bible tells us that God wants us free. 
living full lives, happy and with meaning. It even says that the reason why Jesus, Jesus came was for our freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And did you know that there's a lot of people, a lot of people of great faith in the scriptures that dealt with depression? Did you know that? People who did amazing things for God that dealt with depression. For instance, Jeremiah wrote a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. Lamentations, well, Lamentations 3.17, he begins to kind of describe a little bit of what's going on. He says, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. If you know anything about Jeremiah, you know, he did great things for God. You also have the Apostle Paul who wrote more than two thirds of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, he, he states in 1.8, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Man of great faith, but despaired his very own life. Another great man was a man named Elijah, and that's who I want to talk a little bit about today, because in, in first Kings chapter 18, we see Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets of all times. He comes from doing these major victories. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal like they were offering sacrifices. He said, we're going to see whose God will win. You do your way. I'm going to do my way. And Elijah gets so cocky that he begins to actually pour water on the sacrifice. Like, like he's like, you do your thing. I'm going to show you dumping water and they're calling down fire from heaven. They can't light it themselves. They want to see which God will consume the sacrifice. So he pours water, consumed the entire sacrifice and God shows up in a supernatural way, lights the sacrifice. And then he goes on to do some crazy stuff beyond that. But the miraculous things begin to happen. But there was this wicked king named Ahab and he had a wife named Jezebel and they did not like Elijah. In fact, in first Kings 19, one chapter after these crazy miracles take place, this is what it says. Literally the next moment. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid. How can a man who can soak a sacrifice and see God move be afraid of a bad email? Like, let's get real. One threat. I just put that in the trash bin when I get those. But Elijah was afraid and ran from his life. When he became to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. It says he came to a a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So here's Elijah, fearless for three years, doing, fulfilling miracles and prophecies and all these amazing things, and then has one incident, one threat, 
And he turns and runs to the edge of a desert and he gets depressed. He lays under a tree wishing he should die. And then he leaves and runs and hides in a cave. You see, the enemy wants to rob your life so much that you'll end up running into a cave of despair and depression. A place where you feel numb and you end up trying to destroy your own life. You see, there are nine factors that cause depression. Psychiatrists tell us that there are seven of them that are psychosocial and two that are biological. And you see, psychological reasons will give rise to physical symptoms of depression. And we see Elijah had experienced six of these things. And I've learned that many times the reasons that many people are depressed today is because of our lifestyle. We simply are doing it to ourselves. And since it's a disease of lifestyle, we have to change our lifestyle. And let me just tell you today, there, there is no amount of medication. There is no amount of counseling. And I'll even dare to say there is no amount of scripture that will do it alone. Although those are all powerful, it'd be like eating junk and working out and expecting to be healthy. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. Holy scriptures are no good without working them out. You can read scripture all day long, but if you don't work it out, it ain't going to get any better. And I think too many times we are living our life by adding to our own depression. There's a famous author who wrote a book. His name is Johan Hari. He wrote a book called Lost Connections, and he says this. We need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances in the way that we live. Life imbalances create a tired soul. Life imbalances create a tired soul. Elijah's depression came right after two major spiritual victories, which goes to show us that you're not your best when you're tired, that you are actually vulnerable when you're tired. And more and more research is showing us that our lifestyles are the leading cause to our depression. That research shows that depression is more prevalent for the type of lifestyle that has become normal in our society today in the way that we live. There's another famous author, Stephen Ilardi. He wrote the, he's the author of the book called The Depression Cure. And he wrote this. We, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. We were not meant for that. So we must learn to take order in our lives and give attention to our pace. Give attention to the pace. Ecclesiastics 4 6 says, Better one handful with tranquility. Than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In other words, better to be in balance, having less than chasing things that are driving your life into the ground. What good is all that stuff with no peace? What good is all of it? You see, another way that we can find ourselves deep into a cave of despair is when we get lost in the comparison trap. The comparison trap. It's a real deal. Elijah even said, I'm no better than my ancestors. Cried out to God. And he was comparing himself, and that made him more depressed. And let me tell you, comparison is the thief of all joy. 
It will kill your joy. And I think one of the biggest issues, it's one of the biggest issues of our day because we live in such a narcissistic society with a complete lack of identity. And we are creating a recipe for a complete mental health meltdown. You see, online and social media for most has gone from being a tool that could be used to keep up with old friends and share family photos with family to a place where we compare our lives to people we don't even like. Think about it. You buy things to impress people you don't even know. <laughs> we do. And, and social media has come a place where we express false, confident opinions and if, as if we have a platform that makes a difference. Think about it. Galatians 6 talks about this a little bit. It says each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. In other words, we've got to stop comparing ourselves with others because we all have different assignments. Your assignment is different than my assignment. I wasn't given your life and you were not given mine. So instead of wishing you had what someone else does, you should live the life that God's called you to live so you can receive what God's called you to receive. And you see, too often we are missing what God wants to do in our life because we're so distracted of watching somebody else's. Ooh, man, I'm going to amen myself on that one. That's a good one right there. So distracted watching somebody else's life that we can't even find our own. And you see, when we begin to do and fall into this comparison trap, it begins to create something called self-talk. And we've got to get our self-talk back to God's standard. I like to say it like this, backtalk your self-talk. Have you ever argued with yourself? You probably did it this morning. What should I wear? And I ain't wearing that. That looks stupid on me. It makes me look like I got a big butt or a big belly or whatever it is. You argue with yourself. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I did it this morning. But you got to learn to backtalk your self-talk. You see, there's this thing that cows do. Pastors talked about this many times. Cows do this thing. Any farmer will know or any agricultural person I'd rather would know. They do this thing called ruminating. Anybody ever heard of this word ruminating? Some of y'all are like, rumin what? Ruminating is when a cow eats something and chews on it. It then swallows it. And then a little bit later, throws it back up in its mouth and chews on it some more. And it will do this over and over and over and over. And every time it brings it back up, guess what? It just tastes worse. But you see, when we overthink things and when we obsess about situations or life events such as work or relationships, we ruminate. We chew on it. We swallow it. We bring it back up and it just is nastier, but we still chew on it. And we swallow it back down. And then it comes back up again and we chew on it some more and it's just nastier again. Let me tell you, the devil loves to show up in your self-talk. He loves to show up in your self-talk because if he can make you believe your negative self-talk, he will keep you from your best self. He will keep you from it. You see, that's what Elijah did. He got alone in his thoughts and the story got worse and worse. He even shouted out, I'm the only one left, but he wasn't. He was believing a lie. And you see, your emotions are determined by the way that you talk to yourself. 
In other words, if you change the way you speak, you'll change the way you are. And you'll change the way you are, you'll change the way you think. You will. You're like, how does that happen? I'll prove it to you. And Philippians, we read it. I'm going to read it again because maybe we forgot. Summing it all up, friends, I'll say to you, you'll do your best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best and not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put it into practice, he said. Put into practice what you've learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that. Tell your neighbor, just say, do it. Do that. And God, who makes everything work together, will work into you his most excellent harmonies. If you'll take control of your mind, you'll take control of your life. Simple as that. You see, the best way to better your self-talk is by processing it with somebody else. You can't process it alone in your head. It doesn't, work, it doesn't work good that way. You need to call somebody. You need to call somebody. You need to talk to a counselor. I do, because again, y'all are crazy. I gotta talk to somebody to help me with y'all. You, you need to get into a small group. I'm going to say it again. You need to get into a small group. You need to do life with other believers. Not just anybody who will give you attention, but I'm saying other believers. Why? So they can strengthen you and you can allow iron to sharpen iron too many times. We're trying to dive into relationships with people that don't even have the same standards. That don't even follow God's word. And we're expecting God to, to elevate our life. And he's like, you can't fly with eagles when you're surrounded by chickens. <laughs> I made myself laugh on that one. That wasn't even in my notes. That just came to me. I'm going to write that down. That's a good one. And chickens don't fly high. That's right. We clip the wings of a chicken. Because many times I believe that we, we do a bad job of processing our pain in a healthy way. A lot of us do this. And something I've learned in my own process is this. The process to health is making health a part of the process. <laughs> You're like, well, that, did he just trick me? No. The process to health is by prioritizing health as a part of that process. I believe we could all agree that life is tough. We would all say life can be tough. And the truth is, let me tell you, everyone medicates. You're like, I do not. Everyone medicates. Your dad, he medicates. Your son, yeah, he medicates. Your grandparents, yeah, guess what? They medicate. Because we all feel pain, and we all do something to cope with that pain. And many of us are medicating in some unhealthy ways. Did you know that overdoses have even nationally jumped 42% last year? 42%. 42%. For some people... Drinking or binge eating becomes a way to cope with life. For others, it's maybe TV, video games, social media. Maybe it's even working more hours because you're trying to numb the pain. Maybe it's even going after sexual pleasure. And we all do this to try to drown out the pain. We all medicate. Some form, some way. You know, there is a... 
a Jewish psychiatrist from Austria named Viktor Frankl. He wrote a best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he believed that Sigmund Freud's theory was wrong about life is not all about pleasure. That it's about meaning. And when you don't have meaning, he said, you'll dull yourself with pleasure. Think about that. And after World War II, he worked with, with specific suicidal patients who specifically had been in a concentration camp, and he gave them three things, and he called this logotherapy. He gave them one and said, I'm going to give them meaningful work, something to do that matters. Next, I'm going to give them a community of friends who, who, that love them unconditionally. Okay, then he said, I'm going to teach them to take whatever suffering that they experienced and try to find the positive in it. You know what? It sounds a lot like sounds like a lot what church is about church therapy. You, you do something meaningful, you get plugged into a dream team and you start serving people doing something that matters, doing something that has meaning. You get into a group of people that says, find a community of people that loves them. You get into a small group of people who love you and who are for you and who are with you. And it says it helps them to try to find something positive in their suffering. You attend church to hear a word from God that will encourage you to what? Keep moving. To find the positive. To know that God is with you. He has not left you. That he is for you. He is not against you. And did you know if you study his process that throughout his work, not a single patient committed suicide on his watch? Not a single one. So the question then comes, how do we... And how should we medicate our pain? How should we? Second Corinthians one says this. God, we could just stop right there. God comforts us in our troubles. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces you patient in you, patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Simply put, this scripture means there is purpose in your pain. Why don't you tell your neighbor today? Say, hey, you're getting stronger. Encourage somebody. Tell them you're getting stronger. You see, too many times... We suffer in isolation and alone. And I'm here to tell you today that isolation is the currency to loneliness. It is. The Bible tells us that Elijah said, it said he left his servant there while he himself took a day's journey into the wilderness. And what he did is what a lot of us do, and it's a trap. We go get alone. And did you know that the first problem in the Bible was not sin? Some of y'all, your mind theologically just went. Pfft. It wasn't sin. It was solitude. Solitude. You're like, we'll prove it. Okay. Genesis 2.18. Before sin happened, he had created all these things that it was good. I created this and it was good. He was complimenting himself. He said, I created this is good. I created that is good. Created man, he said, is good. But then he said, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And I believe that it's solitude who turn, that turns us to our sin. 
your solitude will turn you to sin. And feelings of isolation and loneliness, did you know that it affects more than one third of all adults and more than half of young adult people? Did you know that? Statistics show that that's where we're at today. And although we've, we've made it possible in our world today with technology, with remote learning and working from home, we even have online church experiences, and I believe we're using technology to try to reach people, but what we are being trapped into is this black hole of isolation and loneliness, masked by convenience and superficial connection. We have an antisocial society. And in return, it's slowly taking our life. It's robbing you of everything God wants to do in you. Romans 12, 5 says, since we are all one body in Christ, everybody say one. We belong to each other. And each of us needs all the others. We need each other. Why don't you tell the person next to say, you need me. And then say back to him, say, and I need you. Wow, that's some of the most intimacy some married couples have seen in months. <laughs> Woo! We're going to have a marriage retreat after this one. But you see, a factor, I believe, that typically gets forgotten in all of this is something that's very real, and it's called spiritual warfare. Very real. Never forget that a war on the inside is first won on the spiritual battlefield. In other words, if you have a problem going on in here, you can't solve it in here. You have to elevate your, your way of, of fighting. You've got to take it to another level, in other words. You can't deal and solve the problem that's going on in your mind in your mind. You've got to learn to speak it out and speak to Jesus and allow your spiritual battlefield to become one through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we have to understand that we're not human beings having temporary spiritual experiences. We are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. And there is a war going on on the spiritual realm led by an enemy who hates you. I'm not talking like just somebody you just don't like on social media. No, this person despises you, wants to kill you, wants to rob you, wants to steal everything from you. And he's out to get you in any way that he can. You know, what if, what if I told you that tonight somebody had a key to your house and they were coming in and breaking into your home tonight? What if I told you, like, it's, it's going to happen. What would you do? You wouldn't sleep. You would, you, you, you would be on constant alert. You'd have every samurai sword, every gun, every candle, every Nerf gun. I mean, it don't matter. You're going to have something ready. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You would be on high alert, ready for the battlefield because you knew it was coming. Why don't we do that in life? Because 1 Peter tells us very clearly, verses 8 and 9, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. How do you resist him? You stand firm in the faith. You are on constant alert. 
If you read even a couple verses before, it says you must humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And let me tell you, the enemy is working harder to destroy you than you are to try to keep it from happening. He's working harder than you. You think you're putting in overtime. He's got extra overtime. And I believe we've become so accustomed to it that it's just become a fact of life. We've we've just shrugged it off. We just carried on like business as usual, telling ourselves, well, it is what it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. But let me tell you, if you're not active spiritually, you will become a casualty. Your life will become a casualty if you are not active spiritually. How do I know this? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 6.11 tells us to put on the full armor of God. We teach this in our kids, but we forget it. We even got songs about it. But we as adults, we forget that we must put on the full armor of God, not just the breastplate, not just the helmet, not just the sword, which we all want to carry, but put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Bottom line is this. God has given us authority but we have to use it. It's as simple as that. He's given you the authority, but you have to use it. I can give you the key to solving every battle, but if you don't pull it out, you're never going to succeed. And I believe that if you will be alert and you will resist the devil, that you can get out of the cave that you're in right now. You see, one of the greatest weapons that we have on the battlefield is a name. And that name that was given to us carries all power. It carries all authority. Everything is under that name. And his name is Jesus. And you see, Jesus came to this earth so your life would mean so much more than just trying to cope through your pain. And there may be some of you today that you're saying to yourself, well, then I want Jesus in my life. I need Jesus in my life so I can get out of this mess, so I can get out of this cave that I'm in. Let me tell you, friend, he wants to know you. He wants to know you. And the truth is, he already knows you, but he wants you to know him. And if you're here today and you say, I I want Jesus in my life, that I want to live a life of purpose and meaning. I don't want to keep doling my life with the pleasures of life. I want to find fulfillment in what God has for me. That I need Jesus to help me because I'm in this mess and everything seems like it's okay on the outside, but I'm not okay. Or everything on the outside is crumbling down and I'm not okay. I want to pray over you today. And if that's you, and you're in need of Jesus today, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to pray with you today. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, his name is Jesus, to die on a cross for us, that if we would believe in him, that our life would not perish, but it would have everlasting life. And then it goes on to say in Romans 10.9 that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe it in our heart that God had raised him from the dead. Not only did he die on a cross for you, but in three days he went into the belly of the earth and he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He took back what the devil had tried to steal from you. 
It says, if you believe that God did that, three days later, he rose from the grave. If you believe that, it says, you will be saved. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you've done that can deserve it. It is freely given. You just have to receive it. If that's you today, then I want to pray a prayer with you. With every eye closed, every head bowed in this room. If that's you, I'm going to count to three. And if you want to receive Jesus today, I want you to lift up your hand as high as you can. Look me right in the eye. If that's you, one, two, three, lift it up today. I see it. Thank you, Jesus. I see you. I see you. Thank you, Jesus. Just lift up those hands today. Thank you, Jesus. I see those hands. I see you all the way at the top. I see you. I see you. Thank you, Jesus. I see you. Thank you, Jesus. I see you. I see you. A whole family. I see you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hands down. Church, let's, let's, let's applaud everybody. Let's welcome everybody that just raised their hand today. Let's congratulate them. Let's celebrate. I want to pray this prayer. I want everyone in this room to repeat out loud after me, even in your own home, wherever you're at today. I want you to say this out loud where your ears can hear you. Let's make this confession together. Say, dear Jesus, come into my life. Help me to live a new life in you. God, I accept you as Lord and leader of my life. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for me. And today I ask that you would forgive me of all my sin and help me to live a new life in you. I accept you today as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said a big amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate one more time. Come on, make some crazy noise.